according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. Dealing with the second half of the chapter, verses 12 through 20. The temporal deliverance that we have as a consequence of spiritual fellowship in the Word of God. What the Word of God does in our soul as we fellowship in the truth of His Word. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God the Father to bless our thinking, to set aside distractions, to humble ourselves under His authority. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. This is a grace provision, Father, that we have not earned or deserved. And yet in your faithfulness, Father, you have made this time available for each one of us. We thank you for the blessings of uh, preserving a lampstand in this locality, that uh, the word of God goes forth line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Father, I thank you for the form of teaching to which we are committed and uh, rejoice, Father, over your faithfulness to minister to us in this way. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again, as your word will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it, and that includes this hour at this place to these people. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. The Word of God does things. The Word of God does things. Verse 6 says, the Lord, from, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. So if you are in the personal fellowship with Jesus Christ, whereby you are hearing the words from his mouth, and you are benefiting from his activity on your behalf through his word, then this is what we have described in these verses. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on. It describes the internal effects of what happens to you internally as well. In verse 9, you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. You are then spiritually equipped to discern In the New Testament, we're told that we have our senses trained to discern good and evil. It's through practice that we have our senses trained to discern good and evil. And these are the benefits of being a disciple of the Word of God, of living in the Word of God, of studying to show yourself approved. And it doesn't stop there, all right? So we have what God is doing, we have what's happening internally, and then beyond that, we have what happens with the Word of God itself. Verse 10, wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you, understanding will watch over you. And we see the internal effects of what happens when you receive the word implanted. The book of James talks about with humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. All right. And this is what happens when we take in the living and abiding word of God. We internalize it. We receive it. It dwells richly within each one of us and it does things. This is something that earthly information cannot do. Just facts and gnosis um, cannot do. If you know that uh, Pierre is the capital of South Dakota, right? 
Uh, does that fact do anything for you? Olympia is the capital of Washington, all right? So there's knowledge, there's information, there's a fact, okay? Ty Cobb is the greatest baseball hitter of all time. There's a fact. Okay, there's some slight opinion in that. But whatever the case, this information that comes forth is just earthly stuff. It doesn't shape who you are, <laughs> okay? It doesn't... Um, help you to discern righteousness and justice. It does, not, it does not enter your heart to be pleasant to your soul. There's no soul pleasure in that, or there shouldn't be. Now, we can draw a soul pleasure in wickedness, but that's a different topic for, than what we're dealing with right now. What we're talking about is what does the Word of God do as it gets inside of you? All right, what does it do as it gets inside of you? When, when doctors inoculate you, right? When they put something inside of you, what is that supposed to do? Okay, in theory, we'll have to ask, Ethel or some nurse, okay? But you stick something inside of you and it's supposed to do something. You take Tylenol, it's supposed to do something. You expect that I'm taking this internally now, do what you're supposed to do, right? Make my headache go away or clear up my congestion or, or you know, what, what have you, okay? And so we understand how we can internalize something and it's supposed to do something once it gets in there. <laughs> and that's the nature of the Word of God, Okay? Or I often use pregnancy as another illustration. You've got, because you have something alive that's inside of you. There's a baby inside of you. It's alive and it, it rolls and it kicks and it, it, uh, it does things to get your attention. That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God is inside of you and the Word of God does things. Wisdom enters your heart. Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. And there will, be, there will be occasions where maybe your eyes aren't open to things, but the Word of God is open to things, and it spots it right away. And the Word of God will remind you of these things, like a baby will step on your bladder and say, hello, I'm here, all right? That's why you have all this indigestion, that's why you can't sleep. The Word of God will do that, and it'll say, hello, and uh, remind you of particular passages and verses and things that uh, where your thinking needs to be adjusted. So, then we have the practical effects. To deliver you. To deliver you. And there's a deliverance in verse 12 and there's a deliverance in verse 16. And I think um, we want to break them down appropriately. And uh, let's see, I failed to jot down my shortcut. There it is. Wow. Thank you, Lord. Random guess. That was slide number 10. All right. Temporal deliverance is the consequence of spiritual fellowship in the Word of God. Spiritual fellowship in the Word of God. And um, it's the effect. It delivers, it delivers, it delivers. As it says in verse 12, as it says in verse 16, the Word will rescue you. It can rescue you, but you've got to listen to it. You have to unite the Word of God with faith, or the Word will not profit you. Again, James 1.21, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. doesn't automatically save your soul. You can still ignore it. You can still uh, grieve, quench, and resist the Holy Spirit. You can still know the truth and not live the truth. And so just because the word is able to save your soul, understand that you still have to be humble in light of the word of God that you've received. You still have to be humble to be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer only that deludes themselves. See, how many times have you uh, fallen into sin and you knew better? You knew the doctrine. You knew that, that the Bible says thou shalt not steal, but you stole the cookie anyway, right? I mean, even as a kid, you, you know that you're a sinner and you know, you know what you're doing is, is not right. 
And so the Word of God can deliver you. It is a consequence of the spiritual fellowship in the Word of God. Now, the first part of this, dealing with the way of wickedness, as it says, uh, from those uh, to deliver you from the way of evil. It's not just deeds. It's not just certain things, a list of do this and a list of don't do that, all right? Because that list of don't do that is symptomatic of a larger problem, and that's the sphere of evil. That's the realm of evil, the way of evil, as it says there in verse 12. From the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of righteousness to walk in the ways of darkness. It's it's an outlook. It's a mindset. It is the mind that's set on darkness. It's hostility towards God. The love of this cosmos is hostility towards God, enmity against God. Notice, those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil, see, you can have a wrong soul delight, as it says there, who rejoice in the perversity of evil, that's, that's the antithesis of love. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, we're told. Whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. And so this was the principle we looked at a week ago. We cannot be a testimony to our crooked and perverse generation if we are participating in their unfruitful deeds of darkness. We cannot be a testimony to our crooked and perverse generation if we are participating in their unfruitful deeds of darkness. We're told not to participate in them. We're told to instead even expose them by taking our stand in the truth by letting our light shine. So clearly we've got connections here in Philippians 2 and in Ephesians 5 that I think relate very well with, uh, with Proverbs chapter 2. Philippians 2 is 15 and 16, and then Ephesians 5 is verses 6 through 12. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. In other words, live out the book of Proverbs. Our non-participation can become a testimony in itself. See, evil is a crooked and perverse death style. Crooked and perverse. And they call it a lifestyle, but it's a death style. All right? There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. This death style celebrates perversity. And we we struggle because um, to us, this is straightforward. This is biblical. This is biblical Christianity. This is the wisdom of Proverbs. Who wouldn't want to live their life like this? And yet we realize we get slapped in the face sometimes with the fact that um, this world has totally turned good into evil and evil into good and black into white and white into black and denying of any kind of moral absolutes. Um, all the uh, things that the Bible calls abominations, the world says, well, you know, it's okay for them. It's a, it's a relative righteousness. We should celebrate our diversity no, they're celebrating perversity is what they're celebrating. And when you call good evil and evil good, God pronounces woe upon you in that application. Our non-participation itself becomes a testimony. They'll look at you and say, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you running with us? You used to. Well, that becomes a testimony. You say, you know, you're right, I used to. But thank God I'm saved now by the grace of God. <laughs> He's given me new life in Christ. I've been reconciled into righteousness of God the Father. And you've got an opportunity to stand for the truth. And if that's different than how you used to be, well then uh, let them know. 
that they can be that way too. <laughs> that it's a free gift available to them also. That you're not looking down on them for being a bad person and, and there's no pride or arrogance in any of this. Our non-participation can become a testimony in itself. Beyond the practice of sin, it is disgraceful to talk about it. There are certain things that should not even be spoken of and much less even thought about. Dangerous to even think about. There are depraved, the, the passages that speak of a depraved mind, that even thinking about them is defiling. Philippians 4 tells us what to let our mind dwell on. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. Let your mind dwell on these things. Some of these other realms of darkness, the sphere of sin, what's being described here in Proverbs chapter 2, don't even think about those things. Because all you're doing is just feeding the temptation. You're thinking about it, you're thinking about it, and every so often you think about it some more, and every so often you think about it some more. And then before you know it, it's more often, more frequently, longer periods of time. And before you're thinking about it, you've, you've crossed from the realm of fantasy and daydreaming on into the, well, maybe I could do something like that. And then you start thinking about, well, I kind of want to do something like that. And then you start thinking about, well, how do, I, how do I do something like that and get away with it? And then how do I not get caught? And then how, and all these things. And if you would have never gone there in the first place, not talking about it, not thinking about it, you understand that you are actually putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. All right, now we have the second deliverance under point B. The Word of God rescues us from the all too common, that should be a T-O-O, common, pitfall of sexual immorality. The Word of God rescues us from the all-too-common, T-O-O. And by the way, that's not Ephesians 6.12 on that slide. It's Ephesians 5.12 on that slide. I should have uh, fixed that as well. Anyway. The Word of God rescues us from the all-too-common pitfall of sexual immorality. And uh, time and time again in these early chapters, we're going to be dealing with this. To deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words. And here's our introduction to the strange woman. And we're going to see her all throughout. All right, chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way through chapter 9. Heavy usages of the strange woman in the family wisdom portion of this book. Um, there are other references as well in, in Proverbs 23 and Proverbs 27, but the bulk of the strange woman applications are here in these early, early chapters. All right. To deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, and, and instead of being enticing, instead of being uh, effective, they are dead. They're useless words. They don't have any effect on you at all because your ears are already tuned to listening to the Lord. Your ears are already tuned to listening to His wisdom. And uh, by the time we get to chapter 8, we're going to see that that's a competing female voice, that that is uh, another attractive voice to listen to, and that is I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. And we'll talk about her when we get to that metaphor. Um, but if, if you're looking where you're supposed to be looking, if you have God's viewpoint on what's attractive, then that strange woman is not attractive, all right? She's attractive in a carnal kind of way, but you're not thinking in a carnal kind of thinking, all right? And so uh, you're rejoicing in the wife of your youth. You're rejoicing in God's provision. You have the biblical orientation for the sexual pleasures. All right. So she flatters with her words. 
the strange woman that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again. Why do you think you're going to escape? You're the exception to the rule? There are no exceptions to the rule. This is a one-way road and it's it's a a dead-end path. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of righteousness. Just stay away. That is a slippery slope. You put one step on that path, and next thing you know, you are way down into the darkness. All right. Whereas Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers featured strange fire, Proverbs spotlights the strange woman. And the idea of strange is not just a personality quirk or something odd. I think we're all strange in one way or the other. But the idea of different than what God has prescribed. The strange fire is not the fire of his designation. God has every right to say how he's going to be worshipped, where, when, why, with what. And all the uh, the incense that's appropriate, not the uh, strange fire that the pagans would bring, not the um, the worship uh, processes that uh, uh, so many of the, uh, the, uh, the the idolatrous practices of the ancient world were completely unacceptable in the in the presence of the god of of ultimate holiness. So uh, the idea of strange as an adjective, where we attach it to these things like fire. In Exodus 39, uh, 30, verse 9, Leviticus 10, verse 1, Numbers 3, verse 4, and Numbers 26 and verse 61. Um, that's what we have un- in the Pentateuch. That's what we have under law. Now we have the term that's brought into application in the wisdom literature attached to women. All right? Attached to women. And relax, okay? <laughs> We're not misogynistic here. We're not picking on the women. All right, is just the fact that Solomon, uh, David, and Bathsheba were exhorting their son, and so in exhorting their son, they were warning their son about the strange women. Okay, so make it gender appropriate if you are teaching proverbs to your daughter, and teach your daughter about strange men. All right, teach your daughter about the adulterer, the seducer. All right, and you will have effectively the same message. Uh, only directed in the uh, appropriate um, sex of your child. All right. So uh, we have it here in Proverbs 2.16. It's going to come back again in Proverbs 5, 6, 7. Why so many times? Why so many times? Well, let's take a look at it. We ran out of time last week, didn't have a chance to do these. Proverbs 5. So we already saw chapter 2. It's a one-way road. Her tracks lead to dead to the dead, um, none who go to her return again. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a bad road. All right, Proverbs chapter 5 then. My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion, that your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. Okay, so contrasting your lips with her lips. And uh, there comes a time when a young man's getting a little bit older and he's not entirely a boy anymore, but he's not entirely a man quite yet. He's kind of in that in-between stage. And uh, he starts thinking about lips, <laughs> all right? Uh, his lips and her lips and and uh, and how those lips might... Um, anyway, the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech, okay? 
But in the end, again, in the end, down the road, where does this go? What does this lead to? What is produced? What is the consequences? And that is what lust never deals with. Lust and passion and even even appropriate um, uh, passion is is a momentary thing. The appropriate passion is 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 the 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 feeling here and now, the excitement, the 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 uh, appropriate within marriage and whatnot. But it's immediate. It's not down the road. All right. It's not consequences. And in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of shale. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable and she does not know it. You know, is this marriage material here? (laughs) Is this the kind of woman you're going to spend the rest of your life with? You're going to grow old together? You're going to raise your kids and see your grandkids? No. Her mind isn't even there. She's all about the here and now. She's all about the the pleasure, all about the... the, um, You know, don't think that today's hookup culture is, is unique in the history of humanity. Satan has always been prompting unbiblical practices, uh, always been prompting uh, the, because it's so enslaving, that's the thing, that sexual sins affect the body and they affect the mind, they affect the soul in so many ways. So, her ways are unstable and she does not know it. What a conflict with Proverbs 31 with a virtuous woman, the one who does him good and not evil all the days of his life. The soul of her husband trusts in her. The heart, or the heart, I guess, of her husband trusts in her. And um, the stability and the blessings of being heirs together of the grace of life. Okay, all right, Dad, you made your point. You said it, you said it again. That's enough, right? No, it's not enough. We go to chapter 6 and we get it again. <laughs> How many times have we got to pound this into the thick skull? Well... Is, yeah, however, time, how many, however many times you've already done it, and more, okay? It's not enough. Because in part they will believe you, and in part they won't believe you, and in part um, they will want to believe you, all right? And remember, the uh, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They're rather uh, dealing with uh, hormones and feelings and urges and things they've never dealt with before, and they don't totally understand them. Their friends are telling them something. The world's telling them something. And, uh, and their body's in agreement with what the, their friends in the world are telling them. Okay? The, the body is not on their side in this, uh, in this struggle. So uh, you put parents and pastor and church and the Word of God and everything on the, on the positive side of this influence. And then understand that uh, the, the physical body itself is, uh, is the uh, traitor, <laughs> the enemy agent behind enemy lines. And uh, our kids got to know this. All right, Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 24. But you'll notice before that, look what happens here with the benefit of the teaching. My son, verse 20, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Be in the word of God, stay in the word of God. Don't just learn it and leave it. Live in it all the time. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. All right? So 
You're in the Word daily, around the clock. You're going to bed in fellowship. You're going to bed in prayer. You're committing yourself to, to the Lord as He watches over you in your home or wherever you're sleeping. And then you wake up and you're still in fellowship and you start your day with, with a Scripture. You start your day with prayer. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. I suspect uh, the, the psalmist knew this when he wrote Psalm 119. All right? He had access to the Proverbs of Solomon at that time. And also, reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Reproofs. The Word of God is not always pleasant. It's not always these light and fluffy, feel-good homilies in the, the, the 10-minute uh, church approach to things, right? And now I'm saying in a 10-minute feel-good message, and we're out of here. No. The Word of God will be a reproof, and thank God for the reproof. Reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Purpose clause now, to keep you from the evil woman. If you're not fulfilling, if you're not obeying verses uh, 21, uh, 20 through 23, how do you think that verse 24 is just going to happen on its own? If you're not living in the Word of God, is the Word of God going to keep you from the evil woman? No. To keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Now this is more than strange. Now this is evil ascribing to the, uh, to the woman here. Uh, and there's the tongue again, the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. There is a beauty, but it's not the inner beauty of God's Word. It's not the, uh, it's not the, uh, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Right, that inner beauty of the heart that First Peter talks about. Um, Nor let her capture you with her eyelids. All right, and yep, the Bible talks about it like a bird in a trap, like a net, right? Like Bambi and Thumper done got twitterpated in the springtime when the the uh, the little girl deer comes out and the, the the little girl bunny rabbit comes out and all the animals get all twitterpated. All right. Um, for on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Hunters of souls. Nephesh hunters. We saw them also in, uh, in uh, the book of Ezekiel once upon a time, long, long time ago. Um, is this what you want to be reduced to? A loaf of bread? <laughs> okay. Um, as you've given up your soul, what will you trade for your soul? The whole world? Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? I mean, it's just, it's, it's not going to happen. You take a lit torch, shove it down the front of your shirt, okay? That's going to hurt every time. Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Sexual sins are stupid, they are absolutely stupid. The consequences, long-term, short-term, the shame, the guilt, the secrets, the hiding, the everything. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry, but, I mean, that's at least understandable, okay? He's poor, he's, he's a beggar, he's got nothing to eat. If he, if he doesn't eat, he's going to die. And so at least on a human level, we can understand a starving man stealing food, but an adulterer? 
The thief, when he's found, has to repay sevenfold. The consequences for stealing sevenfold. Um, but the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He would destroy himself. He who would destroy himself does it. This is why we call it self-destructive behavior. And you are not loving them if you allow them to continue in their self-destructive behavior without saying you are pursuing self-destructive behavior. Speak the truth in love, all right? If you turn a sinner from the error of his ways, you, uh, that's a love application. Um, he's lacking sense. He's out of his mind. It's an insanity. And it's because he's not thinking with, with that mind, all right? He's, something else is doing the thinking. He would destroy himself who does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find. His reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. How do you pay recompense for that? The aggrieved party is going to want, uh, want blood. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give him many gifts. All right, wow, that makes the point, doesn't it? But he's not done yet. How about chapter 7? Okay. And there's more too, by the way, in chapter 8 and chapter 9. It's just those, those chapters continue the theme. It just doesn't use the term strange woman in, in chapter 9. I think there's good material there also that we'll get into. Chapter 7 and verse 5. <clears throat> Again, the uh, context is if you're not living in the Word of God, you will not be protected from the adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. The protection of verse 5 comes by obeying verses 1 through 4. Keep my words, treasure my commandments within you, keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Is it special to you or could you take it or leave it? Are there other things that, you know, man, come on, the Seahawks are on, you know? Um, how, How many people adjust their church attendance based on the NFL football schedule? Why do you think God invented the DVR? Okay. You you go to church and you you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then you uh, go home and find out if they won or not. And then you know if they lost, you can just delete the DVR. Who wants to watch that, right? And then if you if you know they won, then then there's twice as much fun because then you can watch without all the nervousness of ooh this is a close game. Ooh, I wonder if they win. It's kind of fun. It gives you a quasi-omniscience when you watch those games and the, the sportscasters are talking about how, oh, this could go any way. This could go either way. And you go, no, I can't. My Seahawks are going to win. All right. Um, wait, how did I get there? Oh, um, my teaching is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Are you, are you taking the time to where you are memorizing Bible verses, where you are saturating your thinking with principles, with promises, with, with doctrines? Um, do you take the time to learn these things? Why is it that we take the time to learn a whole bunch of other things? We, we pack all kinds of secular thinking into our brains and, and, um, as opposed to the Word of God. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. All right, and so using male and female relations here as the metaphor to describe how we're supposed to be with the Word of God, all right, and that we have uh, both in the sister and lover components of this, okay, intimate friend, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. There's a full spectrum here in the Word of God. 
that they, your sister and your intimate friend, may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. And then the illustration. Out the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive, remember the nephi? Well, you should not stay nephi, uh, not nephi, pethi, pethi. You should not stay pethi. But I discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, and passing through the street near her corner. So there you go. Problem number one is in the wrong part of town. All right, wrong street, wrong corner. And he takes the way to her house. He didn't have to go that way. That's problem number two. All right? It's not just that he accidentally was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was there because that's the route he chose to go that way. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. Man, he went by that place four different times. (laughs) You know, this is not an accident. This is not an, oh, I just happened to be, you know, in the neighborhood. I thought I'd drop by. No, you were in the neighborhood four different times trying to, and God in his grace, she was gone in the twilight. You know, pray that God will overrule your cardinality. Pray that God will will change the circumstances whereby you're still guilty of the mental attitude sin, but he has rescued you from the overt sin because you got there and she didn't show up. So you flee and you thank God and you confess the mental attitude sin because you wanted to do it, you you tried to do it, but he rescued you and thank God that he did. Even a second time, even a third time. God is slow to anger, but he will not be mocked. And if he's already taken all of these steps and you still are insistent on committing that sin, well, you will reap what you've sown and you're going to reap it fourfold i mean in this application so behold a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart oh well what a coincidence fancy running into you here and uh boisterous and rebellious her feet do not remain at home you know i mean understand she has developed this process over a long long time uh, in her, she abandoned the companion of her youth. I mean, as a girl, she had been espoused and arranged in marriage and all of that, but that's a long, long time ago. Um, she is now in the streets, now in the squares. She lurks by every corner. Where do you think she's been while you were passing by those four times waiting for her to show up? And who do you think she was with? What do you think she was doing? So she seizes him and kisses him with a brazen face. She says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings, and today I have paid my vows. In other words, here's a premeditated confession. I've already paid my vows. I'm good to go in the Levitical process. I've already gone to the temple. I've already paid my vows. This is already taken care of. It's like a a prepaid uh, gift card or a prepaid, uh, you know, I can do what I want to do on this first John 1 9. After I'm done, it's all good to go, right? Wrong. Wrong. Okay. That's a willful defiance sin, and that gets even magnified judgment. So therefore, I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. Oh yeah, it's all about you. (laughs) It's all about you. No. You know how many there were before you, and how many there are going to be after you? All right. And uh, anyway, Well, well, we'll be in this chapter before we know it, and We'll get more detail on this, but 
Um, all these reasons. I'm, I'm, it's all about you. I've spread out my couch with coverings with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey, taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. We can't get caught. There's no reason not to. Everything is just ready to go. Come on, this will be fun. And uh, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. And suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. He's, he's dead and doesn't even know he's dead. Until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, he does not know it will cost him his soul. He does not know. The damage is already done. So, um, therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. See, it's, it's, worse, than, it's, it's, it's worse than what your body's doing. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. It's the heart attitude. It's the promiscuous heart. It's the believer that's not in love with the Lord, the believer that's not in the Word of God. It's the heart issue. You can't put a condom on a heart, okay? And this world's got all these things about what they can do to, to mitigate the effects of their sin. And they don't even realize it's, it's far before the body ever does what the body does. The heart has already been poisoned. Even, even having those wrong desires. So, uh, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down. Yeah, she told you that you were the special one. I came out here to meet you. Lie, 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 lie. Many are the victims she has cast down. Numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. All right. How many times have you got to pound this into a young man or a young woman? Again and again and again and again and again. I'd say right up until uh, their wedding day and then uh, after they're married, of course, then you start to uh, exhort married people. So you exhort single people to not destroy their marriage ahead of time. And then you exhort married people to not destroy their marriage after the fact. All right, uh, 23, well, that can't be right. Oh yeah, 23, 27. That can be right. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. How do you get out of that? Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. How much damage can that do? How much damage can that do? All right, and then 27.13. A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger and for an adulterous woman. Hold him in pledge. There's the strange woman there. Like I say, there are two other uses of the strange woman beyond the family wisdom portion, but the bulk of them are in... uh, Proverbs two through nine, as you see, as you see there. All right. Sub point two then. Early marriage and lifelong fidelity are the biblical norms. Early marriage and lifelong fidelity are the biblical norms. Not in our culture anymore. Not in our culture. 
In fact, uh, the adversary does everything he can to delay marriage. Oh, you've got to get your career first. You've got to get your education first. You've got to get your, uh, you gotta get your uh, financial house in order. You've got to uh, be a homeowner. You've got to have all these things. Then, when you're finally ready, then you can, uh, you're ready to settle down after you've, whatever, played the field and done all that. And see, what our culture has then created is a decade or two decades of, of, uh, of sexual maturity without marriage as the venue for sexual activity. Early marriage and lifelong fidelity. And so, you know, what am I abdicating? Am I, am I advocating? Am I saying that we should go back to arranged marriages, that uh, the parents should contract the, uh, the wedding for your daughters so that uh, when they first hit puberty, then they're ready to be married off at 12 or 14, like that? I'm not saying that. All right? But in those cultures, there are less struggles in... Um, in those realms. That the younger a man and a woman enter into the marriage relationship, then they are able to participate in those marital activities without the temptations that come otherwise. If that makes sense. All right. Constantly, again and again, we're going to see the the husband of her youth or the wife of his youth. Again and again. In fact, in the passage that talks about divorce... But we start with Proverbs 2.17. Uh, she leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Okay, And this is, the, this is how it was done in the ancient world and even on up into mo- fairly modern times. My um, mother was raised by her grandmother and uh, she was married at 15. All right, That was not unusual back in the day. Okay, um, Different... Uh, Different things there. All right, we got this uh, this thing, and, and kids are still kids until you know twenty six. They're still on their parents' insurance, and they're still uh, it's, it's bizarre. We've got we've got uh, a legal system that uh, that, that uh, puts a man in prison for fifteen years for uh, sex with a sixteen year old. Calls that pedophilia, as if the the, the victim was a two year old or something. There's no distinction between. Uh, between a two-year-old and a, and a 16-year-old because 17 is the magic age for consent. And you think, well, wait a minute. Why is this so different than biology? <laughs> if, if, if we define puberty as the sexual maturation of a young man and the sexual maturation of a young woman, and a woman has become sexually mature, or at, at, at the, the puberty basis there, then the young man is supposedly, you know, he's 18, she's 16, and he's going to prison. Okay? And, and he's a pedophile? Well, wait a minute. What, what, he's a creep? He's, uh, he's, is there something disgusting about this guy? What's wrong with him being attracted to a sexually mature female? Biology says he should be looking at at, at a sexually mature female, all right, and finding a maid and getting married and staying faithful. Anyway, that's how do I get on that soapbox? The, uh, <laughs> but see, that's why I believe legislatures need to step in and rewrite the the criminal code so that the real pedophiles are 
the ones that are with the, 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 the right biblical definition, the, the, even the secular language definition of, of, of a pice, of a pidos, of a child. All right, and when they've gone through puberty, they're not a child anymore, and it's not a pedo anything at that point. That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> okay, it's not pedo after puberty. Just as a facet of language. All right. Um, and of course, if you don't sleep with someone you're not married to, then none of that's relevant anyway, right? So that's the other issue. All right, the wife of your youth, the husband of your youth, the companion of your youth. Uh, Malachi chapter 2, here's the divorce passage, says God hates it. Malachi. The final word of the Old Testament. Arnold Fruchtenbaum calls this the uh, the great Italian prophet. <coughs> called him Malachi. That's just Arnold Fruchtenbaum being silly. All right. Malachi. And... Um, Verse 13 says, this is another thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groanings, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? All right, you got this, all this lamentation and this religious show, but you're a, you're a hypocrite. Look at this. The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant it is not good for the man to be alone he has given you a companion he's given you a helper he's given you a partner you are fellow heirs of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered and now you're going to betray that in adultery and in divorce you have dealt treacherously though she is your companion and your wife by covenant but no one has uh, done so who has a remnant of the spirit See, God didn't lead you in doing that. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. See, who's the one that's seeking the godly offspring? Who's the one that has blessed the fruit of your womb? Who's the one that has opened the womb? Who's the one that has assigned you to train up a godly seed? It's it's the Lord himself from generation to generation. God has entrusted those children to you to raise those children in the intact home, the husband and the mother and the wife and the father and the mother. So take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God is very provoking in conscience as it relates to marital vows. One facet of conscience that comes into sharper focus than maybe any other facet that I can find in all of Scripture. God himself is the avenger in these things. So again, the wife of your youth, the husband of your youth, the companion of your youth, the idea is, why do we have language like a young woman of marriageable age? (laughs) Okay, A young woman of marriageable age. Or meritable age. Okay? This is what was expected. This is what was expected for the family, for the clan, for the tribe, for the next generation of the nation moving forward. Marital infidelity is a reflection of spiritual idolatry. 
And boy, we're going to be seeing this again and again and again. Marital infidelity is a reflection of spiritual idolatry. Time and time again. That's why it's called idolatry. That's why it's called adultery against the Lord. That's why the, uh, the, uh, the, the first commandment about not having any other gods before him and why God views that when you are involved in idolatry as equal to or tantamount to adultery against God, spiritual adultery against God when you worship other gods. So uh, again, in Proverbs 2, verses 17 and 18, it's not just that she's left the companion of her youth, okay? That whatever that... Whatever her uh, arranged marriage was from her youth, that didn't last long. And now she's in the occupation she's in. But she has forgotten the covenant of her God. Has no interest in the spiritual realm of any sort. The protections that God has designed for the female in terms of a father and in terms of a husband to shepherd their souls. We were talking about that last hour in the pastoral training class. For her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. There's the spiritual issues behind the, uh, the marital infidelity. And but for the grace of God, this road is a one-way path to a bitter end. And I think we've seen all of those except chapter 9. But for the grace of God, this road is a one-way path to a bitter end. Now we saw that already, right? There's no escape, there's no way out, there's no, the end thereof is death. Well, that's why I put, but by the grace of God, okay? Because God's grace can reach anybody who turns to him and repents, anybody who cries out to him to be delivered. But for the grace of God, this road is a one-way path to a bitter end. It's a rough, rough road. And even when you are rescued from that road, there's damage that's been done in the meantime. All right, there's damage that you've put fire in your bosom and you have been burned. And having been burned, you have scars. You have scars. And you're going to enter into your marriage with scars. So Proverbs 2, verses 19 and 20. Proverbs 5, verses 5 and 11. We've looked at all of these already. Proverbs 6, verse 32. I think we saw that one. Proverbs 7, I know we saw as I read the whole chapter to you this morning. <laughs> um. Yep, we read 6.32 already. The only one of that we didn't get to was Proverbs 9.18. Simply because uh, it's a little bit different language. It's the woman of folly instead of the strange woman. But it's just the same, uh, the same application here. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city calling to those who pass by, who are making their path straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, right? Hello, knuckleheads, come to me. And uh, to him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Oh, come on. It'll be fine. There's nothing, there's no harm. In fact, not only is there no harm, but it's actually good for you. Oh, yeah, you have to. I mean, how do you... Otherwise, if you don't... I had a girl one time tell me that she thought it was marvelous that you've got you to live together before you can get married. How, otherwise, how are you going to know if you're compatible? 
What if you find out after, you know, what if you never live together, if you never sleep together? If you, I mean, what if you find out you get married and then it's just not any good? And you find out that, oh, we're just not compatible. Stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. He is just joining the party and the many that have gone before him. All right. So, but for the grace of God, this road is a one-way path to a bitter end. Well, the last two verses here of Proverbs. The chapter concludes with a contrast of the upright and the blameless on the one hand versus the wicked and the treacherous on the other hand. Verses 21 and 22. We've got... uh, kind of double poetry going on. The upright and the blameless on the one hand. The wicked and the treacherous on the other hand. For the upright will live in the land. The blameless will remain in it. The wicked will be cut off from the land. And the treacherous will be uprooted from it. Now, we have to deal with these as principles. We deal with these as patterns for general application. But we also want to identify that this is, this is application for Israel as a theocratic nation upon this earth. All right? Um, we don't want to try to twist this into a name it and claim it prosperity theology. We don't want to try to twist this into a on-demand, um, I'm, I'm living right and now I can hold God to account for my wealth and my uh, temporal blessings. Right? That twists these passages beyond what they're meant for. Nevertheless, we can find the pattern for what it is. We already had it in chapter 1. We're going to see it throughout all the the chapters here in Proverbs. That we have um, two courses of action. And and the, the choice is set before us. How then shall we now live? Because the idea about being upright and blameless, do we have any control over that? Versus being wicked and treacherous, do we have any control over that? Of course we do. Are we in the Word of God or not? Are we allowing for God's wisdom to enter into our soul and shape our thinking, shape our lives, shape our attitudes, shape our very being? Or are we rejecting the Word of God and pursuing this other course? The, the course of the wicked and the treacherous. There are consequences e- either way. We want the good consequences in the right way. <laughs> All right? We don't want the negative consequences in the wrong way. All right. Well, this is a good place to stop, I think. We've got um, a break coming up. We will return in January with uh, chapter 3. We will, and we may do more with 21 and 22, but I think fundamentally, we've got vocabulary there, we've got concepts, but they're concepts we've already seen in chapter 1, and they're concepts we're going to see again and again and again and again. Why is this so redundant? Why is it so repetitive? The nature of, that's the nature of, of a mashal, the nature of a proverb, is that it's a short, pithy statement. It's designed to be memorable, it's designed to be recited, is designed to be reviewed again and again and again and again because that's what ingrains it. That's what makes it to come alive. That's what makes it real. All right. Uh, Again, next week is the 17th. 
the 24th and the 31st. We have a three-Wednesday break from Proverbs, okay? We will come back on January the 7th for, uh, for our next Proverbs class. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness for this time together, for all your grace. I pray, Father, that we might learn these lessons. We might teach them to our children, to our grandchildren, that, Father, we might um, uh, receive the blessings that you have promised in the context of these applications. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.